This week saw a major announcement from Dr. Anthony Fauci, or as the Chinese call him, Fauci, which is Chinese for corrupt and incompetent little man who may serve as a useful idiot in our plans to destroy the West, even as he's idolized by American journalists, or as we call them in Chinese, Fauci. Speaking from amid the dust and debris of the wonderful economy he helped to utterly destroy, Dr. Fauci said he would retire at the end of the Biden administration, apparently unaware of the fact that the Biden administration ended several months ago and is now simply the real-life version of Weekend at Bernie's, a corpse being held more or less erect by Democrats, or as the Chinese call them, Fauci. Dr. Fauci's announcement that he plans to finally stop wrecking everything he touches provided a chance to take a fond or at least horrified look back at Dr. Fauci's rise to prominence and power through a remarkably consistent string of absolute failures and betrayals of national interest, not to mention the sort of atrocious violations of the moral order that would get you fired or even arrested if you were anything other than a government bureaucrat, or as the Chinese call them, Fauci. Dr. Fauci made his bones or at least made thousands of other people into bones, during the AIDS crisis of the 1980s. After taking the reins at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Dr. Fauci funneled bazillions of dollars into useless vaccine research while directing money away from the antiretroviral drugs that were ultimately developed by private industries to tame the disease. Dr. Fauci also famously spread panic by telling people they might be able to catch AIDS simply through close contact to an infected person, which, to be fair, was true if that close contact included sodomy. At the time, AIDS activist Larry Kramer called Fauci, quote, an incompetent idiot who had spent the hundreds of millions of dollars allocated for AIDS research to, quote, establish only a system of waste, chaos, and uselessness, or what the Chinese call of Fauci. Dr. Fauci's NIAID went on to funnel American research money into experiments on animals, though Dr. Fauci denied he approved the mindlessly cruel torture of puppies in order to study parasites. He said he did it just because he liked mindlessly torturing puppies. Dr. Fauci then directed gazillions into helping the Chinese perform gain-of-function research at their lab in Wuhan so they could develop stronger infectious diseases to unleash on the West in the form of the COVID pandemic, also known as the Wuhu flu, the Chinese flu, the Kung flu, the flu Manchu, or simply Fauci. Once the pandemic began, however, Dr. Fauci rushed into the fray with his usual competence and sagacity, which is weirdly indistinguishable from criminally dishonest stupidity. Dr. Fauci dealt with the crisis by issuing instructions to the public, like don't wear masks, wear masks, don't wear bad masks because they don't work, wear good masks, which don't work either, wear masks while on camera, but then take them off when you think no one's looking. Wear masks on the 31st of October and go door to door asking for candy and spreading COVID. Or wear surgical masks and pretend you're a doctor, because after all, that always worked for Fauci. Dr. Fauci also advised political leaders to shut down the entire economy to ensure that all of Western civilization would be destroyed in order to save the life of one 90-year-old fat man. This would allow the fat man to continue praying for death because he no longer wanted to live in a world where incompetent bureaucrats torture puppies and destroy Western civilization. And so, as we crawl desperately to the end of Dr. Anthony Fauci's distinguished career, it only makes sense that his unbroken history of error and failure has made him a darling of the left, putting him alongside men like Karl Marx, Michel Foucault, and Barack Obama in the pantheon of leftist gods who are wrong about everything and turn everything they touch into crap.
or as the Chinese call it, Fauci. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is zippity-zing. It's a wonderful day, hooray, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, All right, I'm back from vacation. I had a great time. I'm sorry so many of you had to die uh, through the Clavenless fortnight for me to get away, but I needed the break. Uh, we're back laughing our way through the fall of the Republic. We're going to talk about how the left has gone beyond bad ideas and now has gone completely insane and what we are supposed to do about it. I'm going to talk to Congressman Jin. Uh, Jim Jordan, uh, a right-wing maniac. He must be because I almost always agree with him, uh, but really an intelligent guy. This is the time to subscribe on Apple, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a five-star review. It helps us so much. I'm not kidding about that. It really does. You can also subscribe to my personal Andrew Claven YouTube channel, and you will get exclusive contact uh, content there. All you have to do is press that little bell button, uh, and you will electrocute probably someone near and dear to you. Uh, but you'll also get uh, exclusive comment uh, content. And if you leave a comment, and the comment is excruciatingly, unbearably cruel uh, and bigoted, and sexist and everything else will include it in the show as fitting neatly in with our content. Uh, Tanner Poor has the comment. He says, or maybe she, I don't know, Tanner Poor, uh, I received When Christmas Comes this past Christmas and finally got around to reading it today. I read the entire thing today. And then Clavin announces the sequel is coming out. I go to Amazon to pre-order and find out it's coming out on my birthday. If this isn't divine providence helping to spur me through the Clavinless weekend, I don't know what it is. It is, in fact, divine providence. It will also be divine providence if you yourself, the rest of you, would please go in pre-order A Strange Habit of Mine, the new uh, Cameron Winter uh, mystery. It's the sequel to When Christmas Comes. I know it's early. It doesn't come out until October, but it means so much if it has great pre-orders because it means the company, the publishers, will order more copies and we have a chance of getting on the bestseller list. If we get on the bestseller list, it's a series. It will then be a series and I'll write as many of them as I possibly can um, before heading off, shuffling off to Buffalo. So please go on and pre-order A Strange Habit of Mine. So given recent SCOTUS wins, it feels like the pendulum may be swinging back to a time when the nuclear family was situated at the center of American life, where real conversation, learning, and growth began at home with your family gathered around the table. In President Ronald Reagan's farewell address, he said, all great change in America begins around the dinner table. Bring your family to the dinner table with Good Ranchers. Good Ranchers cares deeply about providing families with high-quality meat at a reasonable price. Their mission is to bring people to the table, making those shared moments with your loved ones easy, accessible, and delicious. Good Ranchers ships 100% American meat, born, raised, and harvested in the U.S., right to your door. All of their cattle are grass-fed, grain-finished, and grow in a stress-free environment. Plus, when you subscribe, your price is locked in for the life of your subscription. Good Ranchers not only supports American agriculture, they're also big fans of The Daily Wire. They sponsor all of our shows, so go check them out. You're going to buy meat anyway, buy great meat from folks who support all that we do here. Use my code CLAVEN to get 30 bucks off plus free shipping on your order. Take advantage of this offer. Invest in time shared with your family. Go to GoodRanchers.com slash CLAVEN to start bringing people back to the table and eating seriously delicious food and discussing how you spell CLAVEN. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no easy things. So, 
One of the things we're going to talk about later on uh, today is the novel Dracula. I've invited a lady named Eleanor Berg Nicholson, a very smart lady who's written about the book. I've been studying Dracula as research for a new book I'm writing uh, that's kind of a sequel to The Truth and Beauty, a nonfiction book. And it's an amazing novel, and I'll talk about it with Eleanor, uh, who's very, written some very intelligent stuff about it. But the other day, as part of my research, I rewatched uh, the movie with Bela Lugosi, 1931 movie. Uh, it's not based on the book, but it's based on a play, a 1924 stage play that's based on the book. And so it, it's different, and it develops the character of the madman uh, Renfield, who's Dracula's slave. And he's introduced uh, as a madman when he arrives uh, on a ship with Dracula from England. And they hear his, his crazy laughter in the hold of the ship, and they open up the door, and there he is, it's Dwight Fry, a brilliant character actor. Uh, he played the assistant in Frankenstein as well. Uh, but here is his trademark uh, crazy laugh of Renfield in Dracula in the movie. That's <laughs> great. Now, because the movie is based on a play, right, it almost all takes place in, a lot of it takes place in the drawing room of the house of the guy, the doctor who runs the insane asylum in which Renfield is ultimately uh, placed. And you can picture it as a play every now and again because they want to bring Renfield on. They'll, they'll be sitting in the, uh, in the drawing room and all the good people will be talking and making plans and all that stuff. And all of a sudden, Renfield will come on and he'll be off stage. Before he comes on, you'll just hear that laughter. <laughs> <laughs> watching this film and I thought to myself this is the left this is who they are this is what they sound like <laughs> that's, that's the left the rest of us are trying to take care of business we're trying to take care of inflation we're running our businesses we're raising our family and then this lunatic comes off stage and you start to hear these lunatic lefties come on and start saying all these crazy things while I was gone there was this senate hearing on the Dobbs decision about abortion and all this stuff and they bring on this Berkeley law professor Kiara Bridges and this is really interesting because it's, it's not just her. She keeps using, she's talking to uh, Senator John Cornyn and she keeps using these euphemisms for women. It's cut 28. Do you think that a, um, a baby that is not yet born has value? I believe that a person with a capacity for pregnancy has value. They have intelligence. They have agency. They no, have I'm talking dignity. about the baby. And I'm talking about the person with the capacity for and I'm, pregnancy. You're not answering the question. I'm asking. I'm answering a more interesting you think question that, to you me. Think that <laughs> She's answering a question that's more interesting to me because I'm not in the same world you're in. I'm a lunatic. I'm in lunatic where I'm in crazy land. So I answer questions. So finally, Josh Hawley of Missouri, right, the center for Missouri, he says, well, when you talk about people with the capacity to have baby, are you talking about women? I mean, is this a women's rights issue we're talking about? And here's part of that exchange. There are also trans men who are capable of pregnancy, as well as non-binary people who are capable of pregnancy. So this isn't really a women's rights issue. It's a, We it's, can it's recognize a that this impacts women while also recognizing that it impacts other groups. Those things are not mutually exclusive, Senator Hawley. Oh, so your view is, is that the core of this, this right then is about what? So um, I want to recognize that your line of questioning um, is transphobic, <laughs> um, and it opens up trans people to violence by not recognizing that. Wow, you're saying that I'm opening up people to violence by asking whether or not women are the folks who can have pregnancies? So I'm one, I want to note that one out of five transgender uh, persons have 
attempted suicide. So I think it's important Because of my line of questioning? Because, so we can't talk about it? Because denying that trans people exist and pretending not to know that they exist I'm is denying that trans people exist by asking Are you? you if you're talking Are you? about women Are you? having pregnancies. Do you believe that the, uh, men can get pregnant? No, I don't think so. <laughs> so you are denying that trans people exist? <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing to me. Like, if you look at the woman's eyes, I mean, you just think like, oh, you know, like, <laughs> like doctor put her in that the room in the back of the drawing room. Uh, you know, it's amazing to me that wokeness. Gay people used to be fabulous and witty. You'd kind of say, let's go over and visit Randall. You know, he tells us wonderful, gossipy stories. He's gay, you know, He's a, but he's a wonderful guy. Now they've just made them the most boring, crazy, <laughs> uninteresting, small-minded people. You know, they're just like, oh, here comes here comes Randall. He's gay. Pretend, pretend you're not home and maybe it'll go away. So what's fascinating about this is you only have to look at her, in my humble opinion. It's obvious she's suffering from induced madness when you believe things that aren't true. After a while, you know, you become detached from reality. But what's fascinating about this was that the left thought, oh, wow, she really owned, oh, man, she owned John Corn. Oh, man, she really took them down by telling... The left, the left is so nuts. The left is so nuts. They don't realize what this looks like to sane people. They don't do not realize it. There was an article in the Spectator by a guy named uh, Michael Lokisano. I think I'm pronouncing it right. Nervous media warns the wokesters. So he cites in the Washington Post, Megan McCardle. I think she's kind of a middle of the road kind of libertarian writer, but but she says uh, a Berkeley. The, the headline is a Berkeley professor's Senate testimony didn't go how the left thinks it did. She says the whole thing became a Rorschach test. Many progressives cheered to see Professor Bridges school a reactionary Republican, but conservatives also cheered because they see a gift to Republican election campaigns. And McArdle says, unlike a Rorschach test, however, this one has a right answer and the progressives have it wrong. Moreover, the fact that they can't see just how badly this exchange went for their side shows what a big mistake it was to let academia and media institutions turn into left-wing monocultures. And Locasano in The Spectator goes on, he says, CNN host and analyst Fareed Zakaria warned at the Washington Post that the Democratic Party was heading for ruin by obsessing over things like pronouns. But when the uh, Tweet, Twitter people went after him. Uh, the Post changed the headline because they're catering to this crazy left. So here's the thing. You can't argue with crazy people, right? There's no point. They, they dress like us. There's a, a tendency to argue with them because they look like us. They dress like us. They speak English and all this stuff. But they're not responsible to logic or reality. So there's no point trying to disprove what they're saying to them. You get what, what you got from that lady. You get like, well, you're killing people by saying men. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what you get. And the problem we have, and it is a problem, is that in politics, you have to stand up to them. You have to confront them because they come after your children. They come after your laws. And that's why, you know, you have to say the truth. You have to say that only women have babies. That's part of the definition of women. And that's why Twitter silences you and calls you hateful when you say the most obvious things because, because it's so obvious to everybody. They, once you say it, once you say it out loud, the empire, the emperor is naked, then everybody sees it. You know, I mean, when 
you know, I don't hate uh, Will Thomas. They call you hateful, but I don't hate Will Thomas. This is a guy who calls himself Leah Thomas and steals women's uh, swimming titles. But when the NCAA says they <laughs> name him Woman of the Year, you have to say something. You have to say something. And that takes time away from what we really should be doing and need to be doing, which is to developing a positive conservative philosophy for this new technological internet age. That is the the task we are given right now to do that. And these guys just destroy the conversation. And it's just like the play Dracula, where we're sitting around talking about, well, the, you know, is how much welfare is too much welfare? Do we need welfare at all? Is our programs hurting people? Are they helping people? What should we spend money on this and spending money on that? And while we're talking about that, their response is this. <laughs> <laughs> and and you got to do something because the CDC is pushing this gender stuff. Chris Rufo uh, at City Journal ha is, writes about the L.A. school district. He says Los Angeles Unified School District has adopted a radical gender theory curriculum, encouraging teachers to work toward the breakdown of the gender binary, to experiment with gender pronouns such as they, z, and tree, and to adopt trans-affirming programming to make their classrooms queer all school year. <laughs> and here's Richard Levine, the Admiral of the Ocean Waves. This is Rachel Levine, he calls himself now. Uh, and he's, this is, they want to they do this to children. Remember, there's no science behind this. There's only science that you can damage children forever, forever by doing this. Here's what Rachel Levine says, cut 11. Trans youth are, are vulnerable, um, and they suffer significant harassment and bullying, uh, sometimes in schools or in their community. They have more mental health issues, but there's nothing inherent with being transgender or gender diverse, which would predispose youth to depression or anxiety. It is that harassment and bullying. Now they're suffering politically motivated attacks through state uh, actions against these vulnerable transgender youth. This is not based upon data. This is, these, are, these, are, these actions are politically motivated. And so we really want to, 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 to base our treatment and, and, uh, and to uh, affirm and to uh, support and empower these youth, not to limit their participation in activities and sports, and even uh, uh, limit their ability to get gender affirmation treatment in their state. <laughs> so the task before us is clearly to relentlessly expose the crazy because it's everywhere. It's at the highest level of governments, of academia, of the movie industry, of everywhere. We've got to expose it everywhere we see it. But we can't let that distract us from developing a true, honest, conservative plan for going forward in a new age. It's not 1800 anymore. It's a new age that we need to have a conservatism for that, a positive, a positive vision. Because otherwise, if, if we don't stand up to them and if we don't deliver an alternative, positive vision, the entire world becomes this. <laughs> Well, I just got back from my vacation. I'm sure you're going to be away as well. You want to be able to rest easy with the protection of Ring Alarm. Now, you've heard me talk about the Ring video doorbell. They ring your door wherever you are. You can talk to whoever is there. You can see them. But now Ring makes an alarm. Ring Alarm is an award-winning home security system with available professional monitoring when you subscribe. And best of all, you can easily install it yourself. And Ring didn't stop there. They've changed the home security game with Ring Alarm Pro. 
You want to team up with Ring when it comes to protecting your home and go pro with Ring Alarm Pro. Ring Alarm Pro is a next-level security system. CNET calls Ring Alarm Pro a giant leap for home security. Ring combined a home security system and a Wi-Fi router, so it helps protect your home and secure your network at the same time with Ring Protect Pro subscription. It's an amazing deal. You can get professional monitoring for the ultimate peace of mind. You may not have known it, but it's true. Ring has an award-winning alarm, and this busy summer season, to protect your home, you should go pro with Ring Alarm Pro. To learn more, go to ring.com forward slash Clavin. That's ring.com forward slash Clavin. How do you spell Clavin? Ask the next person who comes to your door if he knows, set off the alarm. So it's summer, obviously, or as the left calls it, a climate emergency. And, you know, this is another place where the crazy has gotten out of control, where the Renfield laughter is everywhere. But it's a story that's not being entirely told. If you're watching the mainstream media, you're not seeing it at all. And I don't even think right-wing media is covering it enough. Uh, you know, it's, this is a hot summer. It is very, very hot. And, and the, in fact, the climate of the Earth has warmed about uh, two degrees Fahrenheit since 1880, which is when the industrial era kind of gets into full uh you know, into full-blown strength. The, the question of whether it is the industrial era, it's industry that has warmed the earth, is still an open question. We don't know that uh, for sure. We can't prove that's the reason, but it kind of makes sense that it might be. So uh, it might be part of why the earth is warming, but it could be other things as well. The earth has gotten warm and cold before. You know, remember, the Great Lakes used to be glaciers. I mean, it's, it's the climate of the earth changes. But you know what else has happened since 1880? Here's this, another thing that's happened. The climate has gone up uh, a couple of degrees but the life expectancy, at least in the U.S., has doubled from, from 1880, when the climate started to climb, make this climb, current climb, uh, life expectancy has gone from 39 to 78. So Bjorn Lomborg writes this. He says, across the world, low temperatures are much more dangerous than high ones. It's more dangerous to get cold than it is to get hot. Half a million people die each year from heat, but more than 4.5 million die from cold. While rising temperatures will increase heat deaths, they will also decrease cold deaths. A recent Lancet study found that rising temperatures since 2000 have on net reduced the number of temperature-related deaths. Researchers concluded that by the end of the 2010s, rising temperatures globally were causing 116,000 more heat deaths annually, but leading to 283,000 fewer cold deaths a year. So it's a nuanced situation, right? And we don't know exactly why it's happening. Uh, we're not sure at all whether we can control it and whether anything we do has anything to do with it. Um, but it... All in all, it is when it comes to how many lives have been lost, it's been a net positive for life. It has been a good thing for life. So, but it's an emergency. It's an emergency. They, whenever the Democrats don't get what they want, it's an emergency. They, they believe in, in a de democracy until they lose the election, then it's an emergency. And they keep pressing Biden, this poor guy. Now he has COVID. He, before, he could barely, barely knew where he was. Uh, they want him to declare an emergency, because mostly because Joe Manchin is not going to go along with their climate Green New Deal craziness because he comes from a coal state, because he doesn't want to shut down coal, especially when they have nothing to replace it for it. But, you know, when the left doesn't get their way, 
You know, the worst thing about uh, democracy to the left is democracy. Whenever there's democracy, they say this democracy is terrible for democracy. So Biden is being urged to declare that he has emergency powers because that would, you know, then he would have special superpowers that he could stop. You know, he could go, he'd be able, if he has emergency powers, he is then legally able to fly into the sky and dump water on the sun to cool it down. And this is Biden being pushed by the left. Let's cut 18. Climate change is literally an existential threat to our nation and to the world. So my message today is this, since Congress is not acting as it should, and these guys here are, but we're not getting many Republican votes, this is an emergency, an emergency. And I will, I will look at it that way. I said last week, and I'll say it again loud and clear. As president, I'll use my executive powers to combat climate, the climate crisis in the absence of congressional action, notwithstanding their incredible action. They're applauding. Yeah, we didn't want to, we didn't like the voting in this voting thing. We don't like that democracy republic. We don't want that anyway. Stop the sun from shining. <laughs> it's like this lunacy. It's absolute lunacy. He's not, I don't think he's going to get away with it. I think the courts are going to stop him if he goes too far. But but still, this is what they want to hear. So he's doing it for the base. The base wants to hear that democracy is over because the sun is hot. Uh, and, he, and of course, he went on in very touching ways to talk about the terrible toll that uh, pollution has t- taken on him uh, personally. This cut 19. And just up the road, a little school I went to, Holy Rosary Grade School. And because it was a four-lane highway that was accessible, my mother drove us, and rather than us be able to walk. And guess what? The first frost, you know what was happening. You had to put on your windshield wipers to get literally the oil slick off the window. That's why I and so damn many other people I grew up have cancer. And why can't for the longest time Delaware had the highest cancer rate in the nation. People were like, wait, what, the president has cancer? <laughs> the president has cancer? Luckily, the White House instantly, uh, you know, issued a correction. They said, no, no, he doesn't have cancer. He has dementia. I mean, you already know, you know what he's talking about. It's funny because this is a story he used to tell that he had asthma. In the original story, he had asthma. So it's gotten much, much worse. Much worse. This has been a worldwide, but certainly Western-wide, it's not bothering China because they're not doing anything about it, but it has been a West-wide disaster. The green agenda has been a disaster. Here's a list. I took this from the um, Wall Street Journal, but I could have gotten it anywhere. Soaring oil and natural gas prices, obviously. Electricity grids on the brink of failure. Energy shortages in Europe with worse to come. The free world's growing strategic vulnerability to Vladimir Putin and other dictators. These are some of the unfolding results in the last year caused by the West's utopian dream to punish fossil fuels and sprint to a world driven solely by renewable energy energy. And so all of this stuff is affecting real people, right? It's, it's, it, it, we have supply shortages. Uh, we have the grids going down. Uh, this is all because of the Green New Deal. It's all because they don't have the power to replace fossil fuels. It doesn't exist. And what's their response? Here's Pete Buttigieg. Uh, he's going to tell you how to handle this. Cut seven. The more pain we are all experiencing from the high price of gas, the more benefit there is for those who can access electric vehicles. It's why we're hoping you and your colleagues might reconsider opposing the reduction of EV upfront prices with tax credits. So, so you're, you're saying the more pain we have, the more benefit we're going to get. <laughs> no. I think that's what I heard you say. You said the more pain that we <laughs> really, have. That's, that's what you heard yeah, me say. That's what I heard you say. I know you want me to say it have. so bad, but, but okay. uh, honestly, sir, what we're saying is that we could have no pain at all by making EVs cheaper for everybody, and we'd love to have your support on that. 
So every, we just got to buy everybody a Tesla. It's just 40, 50 grand. And of course, if the battery goes bad, it's another 14,000. You know, Pete can afford this. Pete can afford a Tesla. Why? Because we're paying his salary. I love my Helix Sleep mattress. I love it because I'm awake all night and it's comfortable. So I want to be comfortable. You want to be comfortable while you sleep. So Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Why would you buy a mattress made for someone else? With Helix, you're getting a mattress that you know will be perfect for the way you sleep, or in my case, stay awake. Everybody's unique, and Helix knows that, so they have several different mattress models to choose from. Soft, medium, firm mattresses. Mattresses great for cooling you down if you sleep hot, like I do. Mattresses great for spinal alignment to prevent morning aches and pains, and even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size sleepers. So if you're looking for a mattress, you take the quiz, you order the mattress, and they match you to a mattress that's right for you, it's shipped to your door for free. You don't ever need to go to a mattress store again. Just go to helixsleep.com slash Clavin, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep or lying awake of your life for a limited time. Helix is offering up to $350 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. This is their best offer yet, so hurry over to helixsleep.com slash Clavin. Take that quiz. First question on the quiz is, how do you spell Clavin? So you want to know it's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no E's. I just make it look this easy. You know, they're all flying private jets around. They're all, you know, none of, obviously, obviously not one of them believes that this is the emergency they say it is, or they wouldn't be behaving the way they are. They wouldn't, you know, there was all this stuff, that, uh, a big uh, chart of how these short flights that celebrities take, nine minutes, 10 minutes, they get in their jet to, to get over LA traffic, I guess. Uh, everyone's yelling at Kylie Jenner because she took a 17-minute flight. I'm not yelling at Kylie Jenner because I have no idea who Kylie Jenner is. So I'm not yelling at her because I don't know where she is. But here's the story. Here is the story that nobody is reporting. I'm taking this, I'm taking this from the Federalist, Beth Whitehead. If you skim the front pages of major corporate news outlets, you'll find no mention of the economic protests raging in Spain, Morocco, Greece, and the United Kingdom. On the Washington Post homepage these days, you'll find headlines such as how to deal with a chatty coworker who won't get out of your office. Uh, you'll find the story of a gay union entitled, There's Two Yentas Plus One Senator, A Lifetime Together. Corporate media has largely glossed over the tens of thousands of farmers, maybe as much as 40,000 people in the Netherlands, which only has 40,000 people, who clogged up roadways and distribution centers by holding Canadian trucker convoy-style demonstrations. According to the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, which records protests worldwide, recorded protests of more than 120,000 people in France, 100,000 in Spain, 10,000 in Greece, 10,000 in Kazakhstan, 10,000 in Sri Lanka, 10,000 in India. Sri Lanka, you know, they keep calling that a protest. That was a revolution. Sri Lanka, a country where they can't even afford to buy a vowel but put between the S and the R, right? It's just Sri Lanka. You know, Pat Sajak keeps saying, no, buying a vowel is a good deal. But they're like, I know, but we got to eat. They finally threw their dictator. He's not, well, he's not really a, a dictator technically, I guess, but he was basically a dictator. They threw him out because he's telling people that they've got to do organic farming and they've and their food is disappearing. They're hungry. They're hungry because of the Green New Deal. And this is a place, you know, they mentioned this, uh, Tanku Barajan mentioned this, uh, Norman Borlaug, one of the people the green the Greens hate. This is the guy who uh, he did more to feed the world than any man before or since. Uh, he built 
uh, chemical fertilizers and crops bred to be disease resistant. And this is what made Sri Lanka, without the A between the S and the R, is Sri Lanka, they put, it put them on the path to agricultural abundance. And now the, the, um, the president, the former president now, Gadabaya Rajapaksa, uh, said, no, we've got we've to do without that. We've got to do organic farming. And of course, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so Gadabaya, it was his name, got to say goodbye because suddenly people stormed his palace and tossed him out. You know, if you watch what's happening, and all of this isn't directly related to the Green New Deal, I'm not saying it is, but if you watch, you know, the, the uh, prime minister of the UK just resigned. Italy just resigned. A lot of people leaving town, blowing town, especially in, in some of these smaller countries, because things are going badly. And not all of that is related to the Green New Deal, but all of it is related to bad governance, which is made worse by the Green New Deal making prices go up, making it impossible to face down a, a bum like Putin. Uh, you know, it's just a nasty dictator. We can't face him down because Europe is buying their energy from him instead of from us. We could be producing it, but we're not. And the thing is, you know, I'm for cleaner energy. I'm sure you are too, but we can't do it yet. This is the thing. Here's uh, Bjorn Lomborg again. He says, the world gets almost 80% of its energy from fossil fuels. And even if all current climate policies were fully Im implemented by mid-century, fossil fuels would still provide more than half of all energy used worldwide, according to the International Energy Agency, and prices would skyrocket. This is Maoism, okay? Chairman Mao, late 50s, early 60s, basically would declare how much the farmers were going to make, how many how much, many crops the farmers were going to grow, what degree they were going to. And he just said, just do it. You're just going to do it. This is it. And they had a kind of a so, one of those so, stupid Soviet theories where the science is supposed to be in line with their stupid Soviet communist socialist ideas. And they said to the farmers, look, this is how much you have to produce. And if you didn't produce for Mao, it wasn't a good thing. You know, you wound up dead. So people were... <laughs> literally sending in pictures saying, here, Chairman Mao, here's my land with all the crops. And they were piling crops on. And then the next peasant would take it down the line and he'd pile the same crops because they couldn't produce them. They couldn't produce them. It was called the illusion of superabundance because the Communist Party kept lying to both the people and to itself that the food was being produced. Up to 50 million people died in the famine that was produced by that, okay? Because they didn't have, they didn't have the ability to grow what communism, what the people at the top told them they were supposed to grow. And now we've got Klaus von Nazi in Davos flying his private jet over to Al Gore's mansion and saying, oh, the people, yeah, yeah, the people have to stop driving their Volkswagens, but I let me get in my private jet and fly around and tell them to stop driving their Volkswagens so we have a clean world. You know, it can't be done. We don't have the technology. Simple, simple answer. Simple answer. Put some money into research and let the people have their energy so they can live. Let us live in abundance, not in uh, non-abundance. Let us have no, no pain, Pete Buttigieg. Let us have no pain. Let us have abundance and wealth and air conditions that work and electronic grids that don't collapse and gas we can afford. It was two bucks fifty just when Donald Trump, the evil Donald Trump, left. He left us with gas we could afford. Now it's twice that. It has doubled under Biden. And some of it is from the Putin uh, war. But we wouldn't be, even be fighting the Putin war if we stood up to Putin. And we'd be able to stand up to Putin if we had the gas that he is selling us. All of it, again... It always depends on science, on silence. It always depends on silence. Just like 
Uh, transgenderism, it depends on shutting people down because the truth is so damned obvious. The truth is obvious. Every sane person can see the truth. If we don't show you the protests, they're not happening. It's not until you look out the door and you see the crowds out there that they're happening. But if we don't show them to you, maybe nobody will notice that everybody is hurting because of the stupidity of the people in power. The COVID lockdowns and now the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal is one of the stupidest things that has ever been done. And it is ruining, it's ruining our countries. It is ruining our country. It's, send, it's sending people uh, into, you know, in, into debt. They don't know whether to pay for gas or pay for food. In, in places around the world is bringing people out into the streets and they're covering it up. So you have to talk. We have to, you know, it's, it's just like in Dracula. We're sitting around going, well, you know, can we afford, uh, you know, gas or can we afford food? Uh, how are we going to build our businesses? How are we going to do things in real life? Are we going to be able to take a vacation? And meanwhile, offstage, they're the Greens, and this is what they're saying. <laughs> So when you go on vacation, you really got to appreciate all the people around you who make the world run so smoothly as opposed to being here at the Daily Wire. That's because a lot of these people use ZipRecruiter to hire their tour guides and hotel concierges and bartenders. You know you get exceptional talent if you use ZipRecruiter, which you can try for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. ZipRecruiter uses its powerful technology to find and match the right candidates with your job. You can easily review these recommended candidates and invite your top choices to apply. And ZipRecruiter has a complete suite of tools that makes it easy to filter, review, and rate your candidates. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. No wonder ZipRecruiter is the number one rated hiring site based on G2 satisfaction ratings as of January 1st, 2022. So soak up all the summer has to offer and let ZipRecruiter do the work. Ready for the URL? It's ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. That's where you can try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire, but you have to be smart enough to know how to spell Clavin. There are no E's in Clavin. There are no So just to show you a little bit of how this craziness, and it is craziness, and how bad ideas, bad ideas, you know, really do affect everything. They just bleed into everything. They drive people more and more crazy. You get people like that Berkeley professor with the big eyes, you know, laughing at everyone. Oh, you're killing people because you deny that men can't have babies. You know, I want to talk a little bit about Uvalde, the, obviously the place in Texas where the nutbag killed 19 kids that went into the school and shot uh, 19 children. Uh, 375 police uh, from state, local, uh, federal level were all there and no one went in. And I was very slow, very slow to criticize this because I didn't have all the facts. I wanted more information. I know that even heroes can get pinned down by gunfire. Uh, even brave men can fail at something. And, and also, you know, I'm not the one running in to confront a guy with a, a gun. So I'm very slow to call anybody cowardly. Uh, you know, I think that that's, it's absurd. It's so easy to, you know, pound your fist and say, ah, oh, those cowards, but you're not the guy facing the rifle. But this is extraordinary. This is, was a truly extraordinary failure at every single possible level. No one took charge. No one went in. Uh, 19 children killed, children calling for help. CNN got this exclusive uh, video. This uh, shows 
this is the terror. This is the part of the worst part of this video to me. It just goes on and on and on as these cops stand around. They're looking at their phones. They're sitting there doing nothing. They're you know obviously uh, have no one to lead them, uh, and there are gunshots coming from the. It's just I, I'm not laughing. I'm just laughing at the horror of it. Uh, there's a call at one point from dispatch, and and she's got a child on the line uh, telling them that this is an ongoing situation. This is not. At one point, they thought, well, it's a hostage situation, but it's not. Uh, this is uh, cut eight from this uh, CNN video. You have a child on the line. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Hey, what was that? And they're still out there, even after this, they do nothing. They do nothing. Uh, and this guy, Arredondo, who's the local guy, and they've been blaming him for everything, but it's not all his fault. I mean, it's his fault, but it's not all his fault. Uh, he's still negotiating with the shooter after hearing about this. This is cut nine. Sir, if you can hear me, please put your firearm down, sir. We don't want anybody else hurt. We got kids in here. I know, I That's know. That's what we're doing. We're trying to get him out. Trying to get them out. We're trying to get them out. It's just, un it's unbelievable. Uh, this is a report from the newspaper reporting on or a investigation by the Texas House. Uh, in total, 376 law enforcement officers, a force larger than the garrison that defended the Alamo, descended upon the school in a chaotic, uncoordinated scene that lasted for more than an hour. The group was devoid of clear leadership, basic communications, and sufficient urgency to take down the gunman, the report says. The report also reveals for the first time that the overwhelming majority of responders were federal and state law enforcement. 149 were U.S. Border Patrol, 91 were state police, whose responsibilities include responding to mass attacks on public places. Uh, it's, it's extraordinary, and it is cowardly, and it is incompetent. I'm not saying they were all cowards. I think you know people need leadership, uh, but but this too is part of the madness uh, that we're seeing in our society—a madness that comes from the top. It comes from the top down. The people aren't crazy. The people are not crazy. You talk, go, you know, travel around. I travel around. I talk to people all the time. The people are perfectly sane. Not all of them are educated. Not all of them have all the details or all the facts, but they're not nuts, you know? The people who are nuts are the people in control. Uh, you know, think about, think about this. When you consider, George Floyd was killed by a, a cop, and I think, I think it was sloppy policemen. Every cop I've talked, sloppy policing. Every cop I've talked to says that was sloppy policing. But there's no evidence whatsoever, not one iota of evidence, that it was a racial incident. And consider the speed with which that was turned into a racial issue. Not one iota. He wasn't charged. The cop, Derek Chauvin, wasn't charged with uh, any kind of racial hatred or anything like that. They, the uh, district attorney, the prosecutor, said they didn't have the evidence for that. And you look out every time the police try to do their job, they come under the gun, right? I mean, there's this, this one in uh, Minneapolis, Techley Sunberg. Uh, the police say Sunberg shot into the apartment of Arabella Yarborough, leading to calls for police that resulted in a standoff. And then Techley Sunberg was killed. And immediately the people are demonstrating outside the house of this woman who was pinned down by Sunberg's gunfire with her two children. She finally stands up to them. Here's a, a cut four.
unbelievable. You're lying. She was pinned down with her two children. You're lying. How do you know? How do you? Obviously, obviously, this is something they do. It's, it's coordinated for the entire country to have caught fire after George Floyd, this violent criminal, this drug addict, was killed, I, I think, by sloppy policing, but not racially. There was no indication that this was a racial thing, that they, this could turn everything on its ear. They are ready, they're prepared, and they're selling their insanity. And of course, so you have these police, they're standing outside why do they need a leader to stop a guy from shooting kids, right? I mean, uh, people people have stopped uh, shooters without any leadership whatsoever, but, but each one of them is on the dime. Each one of them is on the dime waiting, knowing if he does the wrong thing, knowing if he steps out of line, knowing if he shoots somebody. Even when you have a woman there with kids in danger, if you shoot somebody, they're going to show up. They're going to call you names. They're going to say it's racial. They're going to do all the things that they're afraid are going to happen. So they're frozen. And there's something even more than that. You know, the president of the United States has COVID. Joe Biden has COVID. And, and I wish him well, and I hope he gets better. And, you know, that, that, but that's not how the press treated Trump when he had COVID, right? When Trump finished, and I've, I know I've talked about this before, but it's so important and it's so much a part of this. When Trump came back, remember, and he kind of came back and he said, I'm better, and he stood on the balcony, pulled off his mask, the press went nuts. He sent out a tweet saying, don't be afraid, don't let this govern your life, and the press went nuts. Here's a, a montage, cut five. President Trump wrote on Twitter, don't be afraid of COVID, don't let it dominate your life. Almost 210,000 Americans are dead. Speaking of outrageous, uh, this outrageous tweet. Oh my goodness, Nicole, when I saw that Trump, I mean, I, I literally was overwhelmed. And now we see this tweet, which is heartless. It is uh, cruel. Jake, this is, this is so disrespectful. I'm not even sure I can, I can speak about this. It's incredibly, uh, incredibly disrespectful. What does that mean, don't be afraid of it? I mean, first of all, it's, it's a contagious disease that kills people. There's nowhere to even begin. It's gross. Don't tell your supporters, don't be afraid of COVID. Everyone should be afraid of COVID. It's okay to be afraid of COVID, and it's okay that, that it's dominating your life because it has dominated your life. Is that amazing? Is that amazing? Be afraid. It could, you could die. And now we, we learn about death from the guy. Remember when Andrew Cuomo, before we found out he pinched a girl's butt or whatever he did? I mean, he, he killed a lot of old people. That didn't matter. It was when he pinched the girl. Uh, remember Andrew Cuomo was held up as the anti-Trump. He was the man. He Oh, my goodness. He was the latest idol. Anthony Fauci, latest idol. You know, whoever, whatever... Low life was <laughs> saying, standing up to Trump was the latest guy who's going to be the next president. Now, I told you, you heard on this show first, you heard that he was never going to be president because he was corrupt. He had this moment when, a, a, when there were protests because they were locking down everything. And he was challenged by a reporter saying, these people can't eat. They can't make a living. They can't keep their businesses going. They're protesting. What do you have to say to them? And this is the exchange, cut six. I don't know if you can hear, but there are protesters outside right now honking their horns and raising signs. And they're saying that they don't have time to wait for all of this testing and they need to get back to work in order to feed their families. Their savings is running out. They don't have another week. They're not getting answers. So their point is the cure can't be worse than the illness itself. Yeah. What is your response to them? The illness is death. What is worse than death? Well, what if somebody commits suicide because they can't pay their bills? Yeah, but the illnesses may be my death. 
as opposed to your death. You said they said the cure is worse than the illness. The illness is death. How can the cure be worse than the illness if the illness is potential death? Hmm. Hmm. Now this is, you know, they put this up on YouTube as a, an example of Andrew Cuomo's brilliance, as a genius of taking down this idea, because what could be worse than death? What could be, is slavery worse than death? No, nothing's worse than death. Is, is dishonor worse than death? Is uh, your, your family's life worse than your death? I mean, what, what is, you know, you're destroying people's dreams, you're destroying the economy, you're destroying uh, people's means of making a living, you're making people poor, you're making them dependent, but at least it's not death. It's not death, right? It's not death. And it all, it all always, always, always comes back to this materialist idea. It is all about this materialist idea. No God, you're just a piece of meat. You're just a piece of meat with a chemical set inside, a chemistry set inside. The one thing you don't want, no, 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 you don't want to die because if you die, what is there? There's nothing. There's nothing worth dying for. There's nothing worth dying for. And I'm obviously, obviously not saying that that directly feeds in uh, to Uvalde, that it directly means um, you know, that they were sitting there going, well, Andrew Cuomo says there's nothing worse than death. But yeah, ultimately, ultimately, if you have a world in which there is nothing worth dying for, it's not worth dying for your dreams, it's not worth dying to feed your family, it's not worth dying to keep the economy going for everybody else, uh, you know, it, because it might cause Andrew Cuomo's death, so you don't want to do that because there's nothing worse than death. Why would you charge into a room full of children? Why would you choose... Char- uh, charge into a room with a rifleman in there who might cause death, as Andrew Cuomo would say, what is worse than death? Why would you charge in there and risk your life? That all, The only thing you've got, because you got nothing else, why would you do it? You know, this, these ideas, these ideas, they make everything worse. They've made all our life worse. Look around. Is, is because of, uh, you know, critical race theory, is our life better or is it worse? Transgenderism, life better or worse? Children, better or worse? They're, they're crazy. They're sick. Lies, lies, false ideas, they lead to madness, and only the truth can set us free, and otherwise, otherwise, everyone becomes Renfield. So I already told you that I love my Helix mattress, and that's why I'm so excited to tell you that Helix has left the bedroom and started making sofas so I can lie awake on those. They just launched a new company called Allform, and they're already making the best sofas in the game. So what makes an Allform sofa really cool? For starters, it's the easiest way. You can customize a sofa using premium materials and at a fraction of the cost of traditional stores. You can pick your fabric, the sofa color, the color of the legs, sofa size, shape. Make sure it's perfect for you and your home. All form sofas are also delivered directly to your door and have simple, quick assembly, no tools needed. And if getting a sofa without trying it in store sounds a little risky, don't worry, you get 100 days to decide if you want to keep it. That's more than three months. You don't love it. They'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund, but you will love it. To find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash Clavin. And Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash Clavin. You can lie around in comfort and style and say, how, how, how do you spell Clavin? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. Well, I'm delighted to be here talking to Congressman Jim Jordan. He is the founder of the Freedom Caucus and the author of the new book, Do What You Said You Would Do, Fighting for Freedom in the Swamp. And 
He must be a right-wing lunatic, because I almost always agree with him. It's frightening we let people like that into government. Uh, Congressman, it's, it's great to meet you. Good to be with you, and I think it's the other way around. I almost always agree with you. I appreciate what you do. <laughs> that's, that's just frightening. Yeah. <laughs> people like me shouldn't have any power. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm watching everything that's happening in Congress. And you, you have been fighting. The Freedom Caucus is really has been a solid right-wing voice for, I don't know, it's been a long time now, at least 10 years, something like that. Yeah. What I see in Congress is uh, almost a, a, a circus. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, before we went on the air, we were just talking about the fact that I was at some of Trump's prayer breakfast, and there was a sign at the prayer breakfast, people getting along. See people saying, we pray together. I'm a Democrat. He's a Republican. We pray together so we don't stab each other in the back. Is it still like that? No, I think it's very, very divided. Um, you know, I uh, remember on Inauguration Day, Joe Biden says he wants to unify the country. Yes. And then about an hour and a half after his speech, he goes to the Oval Office and signs like 20, 21 different executive orders that divide the country. So uh, it's, it's very, very divided. I think a lot of it is today's left is different than the left of, of 10 maybe even five years ago, um, today's left doesn't believe in, um, they don't believe in the First Amendment. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they don't believe in, in, in free speech. Today's left says, if you don't agree with them, you're not allowed to talk. And if you try, they're gonna call you a racist and they're gonna try to cancel you. And the left of five, 10 years ago, um, I think we were talking before that um, Dennis Kucinich is a friend of mine. And Dennis is a left. I mean, he's like, he's like way over here and he thinks I'm a crazy conservative over here. But we're friends, literally. And, and we used to be on the committee together, uh, oversight committee. And we could agree on, on, on you know, privacy issues and First Amendment issues and, and liberty interest. Um, but today's left is not, not that way. And that, that's, that's, that's problematic. And frankly, you, you mentioned the Freedom Caucus. I tell folks all the time, there's a reason we called it the Freedom Caucus. We could have said the conservative caucus. We could have come up with some other catchy name, but we said, no, let's focus in on what matters. What makes America this special place where if you have a goal, you have a dream, you're willing to work hard, you can, you can accomplish that. And you can accomplish that because we have freedom. And um, that's what's under attack by today's left. And that's why it's so important that we, we fight them every step of the way. Whenever they try to cancel one of us, whenever they try to cancel a constituent who shows up at a school board meeting, you gotta defend them. You gotta defend the truth. You gotta defend freedom. Um, Cause that's, that's what really is at the heart of it all. Is, does this affect your, you were talking about being friends with Dennis Kucinich, which is a hard image to get in my, my head, but still. <laughs> uh, but no, that is the America I remember actually. Yeah. So does this affect your personal relations in the, being a congressman, you have to be able to negotiate and talk and hang out. I mean, well, it's been tough of late because, uh, and I don't think it's, you know, again, we all have biases, I guess, but but I don't think it's coming from the Republican side so much. But you have Democrats who they like they're, they're it, particularly during COVID. I think COVID exacerbated all this uh, that was that was happening. But you know, the, people wouldn't get on the elevator with you if you <laughs> if you didn't have a mask on or something. People people would yell at me. Um, I mean, it's like it, it's a different. Um, it just seems different than, like I said, five, 10 years ago. Um, so you try to, I, I'm, I try to be polite to people. I and mean, that's what we're supposed to be as, 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 as you know, just good, you know, good manners, good, good people. Um, but yeah, they get, to, now in committee, that's a different animal. When we're fighting about policy and, and or, or it's an investigation, we're trying to get to the truth. I'm going to be as tough as I can be within the rules, within right. the constitution, make the arguments, do the cross-examinations that need, you know, in the way they need to be done. But outside a committee, sometimes they won't. 
maybe this is the best one. Then this was, um, so this was a year and a half ago. So it was after the 2020 election, about a week before Christmas, I was in, in, in the Capitol. We were finishing up the business before we went home for the holidays. And um, I was up, up the, at the Conservative Partnership Institute. I had to meet Jim DeMint up there for something. And they're right on Independence Avenue, up down about, about three blocks from the Capitol. And um, so I, had, and, and I, I step out, and they're right on this, the, the corner of the street. And I step out, and it's a sunny day. There's the Capitol. The sun's hitting the Capitol dome. It's a week before Christmas in America. And as I step out, coming down the sidewalk is this, this guy pushing a double stroller with two little kids in the stroller. And I'm like, this is as apple pie as it gets. Yeah. This, is, this is a week before Christmas, the sun on the Capitol, nice day, two kids in a stroller, the dad pushed. And I did what any American, I smiled at the guy who's pushing the stroller. And he was like, just like gave me this look like Jim Jordan, that no good conservative. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, lighten up. It's America. Yeah. You're still bad at Trump voters or whatever, but come on. And, oh. and that's the, that's not healthy. And it's, and I think it mostly comes from the left because I was willing to smile at him and I, he had a mask on outside. I figured he's probably a liberal, yeah. but that doesn't change that it's a week before Christmas in America in the Capitol Dome with the sun on. I mean, <laughs> so I don't get him. I don't get him, but let's, no. let's hope it's, let's I, hope it stops. I feel the same. And I've lost friends and relatives and I, I don't even believe it can happen. When, if you, when you look at Congress, as we're sitting here right now, what's the most dangerous thing you see going on? The attack on your liberties. First Amendment, Second Amendment, Fourth Amendment due process is red flag law, crazy. Okay. Someone doesn't like you, uh, they, go to the, they go to the law enforcement, they go to a judge, say, Andrew's crazy, take his guns away from him. Um, there's a hearing within 24 hours. You can't be at it. Your lawyer can't be present. You've not been charged with the crime, but they can take your property in America. Yeah. And then you have to petition the government. The initiative then goes, the burden then goes to you to go get your Second Amendment rights back and get your firearm back, for goodness sake, or firearms. Who knows? So somehow that's America? Like, you got to be kidding me. And then not to mention what's happened to your, uh, your I mean, think about it. I, I, I say this in speeches. Every right we enjoy under the First Amendment has been assaulted over the last year and a half by the left, by government. You, so you right to practice your faith, right to uh, assemble, right to petition, freedom of press, freedom of speech, everyone. So there, there, until a few months ago, there were still some states where their Democrat leaders wouldn't let a full congregation meet on a Sunday morning in church, like in America? No. About a year and a half ago, I spoke to the New Mexico Republican Party in Amarillo, Texas, because they had to go to Texas to get the freedom to assemble mm. in the size crowd they wanted to. Um, until a couple months ago, you couldn't go to your capital to petition your member of Congress to redress your grievances because Pelosi wouldn't let you in your capital that you pay for. It's your capital. It's American people's capital. Yeah. And you just go to, and we know what's happened to speech, the disinformation governance board that they tried. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> Jin, here's the best one. Jin Psaki stood in the White House press room. The White House press room. So think about it. The White House is the center of freedom, considered the center of freedom on the planet. In the press room, the press secretary at the podium says these two sentences. Most Americans now get their news from social media platforms. We, the Biden administration, are working with those platforms to limit the disinformation in America. Like, and I'm like looking around like, the press person just talked about limiting the press from the press room in the White House yeah. in America? And they don't object. No, it's like they're cheering no. it. That's the, most, that's the most dangerous thing happening. So you see people, Republicans, feeling confident about the midterms coming up. Are you confident? Yeah, but uh, I mean, my background's in, in wrestling and everyone would be overconfident. So I don't want to get overconfident, but I am confident because we, we, 
go all over Ohio, all over the country, and you can feel it. Yeah. Um, and people sense what, I, what we just talked about, what's happening to their liberties. But, but in a, if you could sum it up, they got you know, less money in their wallet, less gas in their car, and less freedom. That's probably not a good message to run on, and that's what, that, that's, that's what the Democrats have done. So you look at every policy area, it's been a bad. And maybe most telling, um, I've been around politics a little while now, whenever you see wrong track polling numbers where they're at, almost nine out of 10 of our fellow citizens think the country's headed in the wrong direction. Right. They think that because it is. And their American people are smart. They got common sense. They get it. So I do feel good about our chances in, on November 8th. I think, I think the country's about ready to send a message to the hard left and to the Biden administration. Time out. So do you have an account with Coinbase? Or are you thinking of opening one, but you don't know where to start? You should check out Alto IRA. With an Alto Crypto IRA, you can trade crypto like Bitcoin and avoid or defer the taxes. Trade all you want without the tax headache. No commissions, no paperwork. Alto makes investing in crypto incredibly easy. Create an account in just a few minutes. Invest with as little as 10 bucks. No setup charges. Just create your account transfer your funds, and start investing. Alto offers industry-leading security and alternative investment opportunities through some of the world's most recognized platforms and fund partners. Plus, there are multiple ways to fund your account. Make a cash contribution, transfer cash from an existing IRA, or roll over an old 401k. Open an Alto Crypto IRA account with as little as 10 bucks. Just go to altoira.com slash Andrew. That's A-L-T-O ira.com slash Andrew. Start investing in cryptocurrency today. Go to altoira.com slash Andrew. So your book is called uh, Do What You Said You Would Do. One of the complaints that Republicans and especially conservative Republicans have is that the Republicans are always saying, well, if we had the House, we could do something. And when they have the House, they say, well, if we had the Senate, we could do something. And then they get the presidency yeah. too. And nothing happens. I mean, they can't overturn Obamacare. They can't uh, build a wall. They can't do the things that you would think they would be able yeah. to do running the government. Let's say you take the House. That's the easy one, the easier yeah. one this time. Yeah. I shouldn't say easy, but it's easier. What, what will we get from that? We in the House will pass what um, uh, important legislation that the country needs. Now, will it get to the Senate? Yeah. Probably not. Well, if, if it does get to the Senate, will Joe Biden sign it? Almost definitely not. But it's still, we still need to pass it. Something on, on uh, the censorship kind of concept that's happening with big tech limiting and going after conservatives. It's definitely something on the border too. We, we no longer have a border. Uh, we need to, we need to uh, uh, I think, something, things we can do on the, on the regulatory environment, on the tax policy. There's lots of things we can pass that are consistent with Republican principles of what we campaigned on. Them. But what we can also do, um, part of our constitutional responsibility as members of, of, of the legislative branch is to do oversight to do the investigations that should be done so the nation, so the people, so we the people have the facts and the truth. The country needs to fully understand where this virus started as an example. The country needs to understand why there's such a mess on our border. We think that's intentionally done by the Biden administration. The country needs to understand about the political nature of the Justice Department, specifically the targeting of moms and dads who are showing up at school board meetings. Uh, the, the country needs to know how in the world did thousands of Americans' tax returns get public? It's not supposed to happen in this country. Right. So do those investigate. I ask uh, on, the, on the virus issue, I asked Dr. Burks, uh, this is like four weeks ago, I'm, I'm on this select committee on coronavirus, this committee. She was the witness. And I asked her um, four weeks ago in, in a hearing, 
I said, uh, Dr. Burks, when the government, the Biden administration, when the government told the American people that the vaccinated couldn't get the virus, were they guessing or lying? And her response was, I don't know. Oh. What do you think about that? Like, what, you're, you're, you're the big shot on the, on the, the task force. And, and, and not during the Biden administration where, where Doc, uh, you know, Walensky told us, CDC director told us this, and Joe Biden told us this, for goodness sake. Um, and, and you don't know? I said, and so I followed up. I said, so, so our government was lying to us? She goes, I like to think not. I like to think they were hoping, but I, I mean, that's wow. scary. So wow. yeah. the country needs, and it's, it's frankly why there's this, this, I think, this uneasiness and this lack of confidence so many Americans now have in our government because how many times have they told us things that weren't true? Yeah. They always talk about misinformation that you and I would convey. No, the misinformation comes from, most of it comes from the government. Yeah. You know, going back a minute to talking about laws you would pass in the House that wouldn't make it through the Senate. I mean, obviously, the left is doing that now, and they're passing laws about marriage and about uh, uh, contraception, things that I, I don't think are really under threat. They're kind of, I guess they're, they're pretending. What, aside from political theater, what is the point of passing those laws? It's political theater. They think it's, 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 it's going to help them somehow in the election. I don't think it's going to. And frankly, what else are they going to talk about? But when you said that if the, if, you took, if the Republicans took back the House, you would also pass laws that the Senate wouldn't pass, what? Well, I do think what you campaign on, this gets yeah. back to the do what you said to you. That's why I, that's why I made the title of, of, yeah. of my book. Um, and, 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 and frankly, I would argue no one has done that better, did more of what they said they would do than President Trump. And I think it also underscores this, it, to really get things done, um, you need the executive branch. And in, in modern American um, government and politics, to affect real change, you almost have to have the executive branch. And we saw this when President Trump was in there, when we were able to reduce regulations, cut taxes, build the wall, do things that Republicans campaigned on. President Trump, like I said, I think he kept more of his promises, did more of what he said he would do than any president we've ever had. Early in the administration, I remember going to the West Wing there. I was with Congressman Meadows. This, this was earlier, so we, before he was chief of staff, and we were there in one of the offices in the West Wing. And literally in, in the office, they had a big whiteboard. And they had written every single promise President Trump had made to the country in the 2016 campaign, everyone. And they were just checking them off. Yeah. As they were, it, like, reduce regulation, cut taxes, build the wall, get out of the Iran deal, get out of the Paris climate, embassy in Jerusalem, conservatives on the court. I mean, just like... And it was a, just, that's how you're supposed to govern. Uh, and, and we need to do that. If we, we promise the American people, we're, we're concerned about the border, we're concerned about energy policy, the inflation. We need to pass an energy package, but Joe Biden's not gonna sign it. Even, and frankly, even if he wanted to, and, and, and knowing that would help the country, the left that controls his party won't let him. Right. So, but you frame up, by doing that, you help frame up the 2024 race, and you have a presidential contest, and whoever the American people decide, if they put in President Trump, who I think is going to run, then we can really get those things done. But you have to help frame it up. That's, I mean, that's just how American politics works. Do you, do you think that President Trump has been damaged by the January 6th committee? I really don't. Um, because you know, I do think the American people have common sense, and they have seen from day one the left has been out to get this guy. They started investigating before he was in office, the whole Russia, Comey, McCabe, Peter Strzok, Lisa Page effort. Uh, they impeached him twice while he was in office. Uh, and they're trying to impeach him now and go after him that he's out of office because they don't want him to run again. And they don't want him to run again because he proved you can actually go in and disrupt the swamp and put America first. And they can't stand it. They cannot stand. And, and here's the interesting thing. 
It's not just Democrats who yeah. can't stand it. Yeah. It's some Republicans. Right. And it's most, maybe the scariest of all, it's all the bureaucracy. And I always tell people, he got more done than any other president we've ever seen. And everyone was against him. Everyone in the media, everyone in the Democrat Party, a bunch of Republicans, and all the bureaucracy. And still got more done than any president, certainly in our lifetimes. So um, that's why they don't want him to run. And, but all, all that, that's why I, I do want him to run and I want him to be president again. And what would you think he should do differently if he gets back in. I mean, it was, a, it was a chaotic presidency. I mean, he was a guy who, he, I, I love the fact that he went after the press. I think the press deserves everything he sure gave him. Every single word he said, I thought was true about the press. But it did create this kind of atmosphere of chaos around him that I think, I do think it alienated a lot of people. Well, uh, I think it's his style to be aggressive. Yeah. Um, the, the one thing I love about the guys is, is um, he, and you've spent some time around him too, I know, but I, I feel fortunate. I've got to spend you know, a lot of time around him. Um, you can't help but like him. Mm, yeah. He's like, if he was here right now, he'd make, he'd make everyone feel at home. He just, he just, our family's been around him. He makes everyone feel special. He's just that kind of, he's got this charisma and energy about him that's, that's special. He loves the country. He loves our law enforcement. Maybe you see law enforcement guys, you talk, they'll come up to me all the time, like, keep fighting for the president. You know? So they, 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 he loves our veterans, our military. He loves the country. And the other thing that's so special about him is he hates to lose. He hates. <laughs> yeah, he's made that apparent. Yeah, it's like winning. But that's an American. That's an yeah. American. We're Americans. Like right. Americans, we like winning because we're Americans are winners. And we came here because we want to have a goal, a dream. And they told us in Europe, oh, you can't do that. Can't. Well, we'll show you, right? That's the American attitude. Yeah. So he's got that just that sort of fundamental, basic American attitude that um, I do think, um, you know, make America great again is one of the greatest political slogans of in history and and it's and it's truly what he it's not fake it is as genuine as it gets mm. and that's what the country i don't think gets to see because uh the press is always oh yeah attacking him so much but if you know if he sat right here he'd be saying that those the same kind of things and you would you would you would love the guy going back to the border for a minute you know when they were t- discussing the border and when you did in fact have most of the government you were a, a voice that was I don't. I don't want to say necessarily negatively, but you were you were making it difficult to get reached to a compromise. You guys on the in the Freedom Caucus in general were very uh, intransigent on this. On 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 uh, passing an immigration bill. Yeah. Well, I'll give you a, a quick story. It's actually I write about in the book. Um, there were two bills uh, that we had a chance to pass in eighteen. One was the one that was consistent with the, the election of 2016 that was the kind of Trump message type of bill. Right. Built the wall, uh, did what we needed to do on asylum, on border security, on agent, uh, border patrol. Did the right things. Uh, the other one was the Chamber of Commerce bill that Paul Ryan wanted. And we had this struggle within our conference and we kept saying, bring up the Trump-focused bill, not the one you guys, not the one the Chamber wants. And, and we could never get off the dime. And finally we said, if you don't bring up the immigration bill, this is the games that get played. And, yeah. and I, I thought a smart game that we played as a Freedom Caucus. We said, if you don't bring it up, we're not gonna, we're not gonna pass the uh, farm bill. And farm bill is a big piece of legislation, particularly for Freedom Caucus guys. We all represent, many of us represent rural agriculture districts. And we said, we'll hold up that. And, and I remember Paul Ryan looking at Meadows and me and they said, you're gonna, you're gonna vote against the farm bill? Like, you know, you're, you're crazy. And I said, well, we don't really want to because there was actually some welfare reform in the farm bill and the food yeah. stamps program and all. And we said, uh, well, we don't really want to, but we will if you don't bring up the immigration bill. He didn't, he didn't believe it. So I'm like, all right. So he brings up the farm bill. Farm bill went down and they were so mad at us. Huh. And, and we said, bring up the immigration bill. 
And then what they did is they brought up both of them. The chamber bill got 123 votes. The bill we wanted got 193 votes and they didn't whip it. And we went to Paul afterwards and we said, Paul, we got 193 votes. We told you all along that was the right bill. Not enough to get over the finish line, but close. Your bill, no one wants your bill. And um, I said, <laughs> and you guys didn't even whip the one. Like, yeah. you know, you yeah. put the whip effort behind it and the leadership effort behind yeah. it. That's how you get votes. And I said, go whip that vote. Let's, let's pass that and, and do what we're supposed to do. Uh, wouldn't do it, but we kept our word. About a week after those, that the vote on those two immigration bills, they brought the farm bill up and it passed by one vote and we provided the votes for it. So uh, we tried, that's, that's sort of what the Freedom Caucus is kind of effort it's supposed to do. But we were actually for doing what was consistent with the message of the 2016 election. Our leadership wanted what the chamber wanted, which is not what President Trump campaigned on and not what the American people elected us to do. You know, I could talk politics with you a long time, but I got to stop. I, I, really great talking to you. I hope you will come back and talk again. I would love again to come because back. I, I, Thanks for really having Really interesting hearing. Thanks a lot. Congressman Jim Jordan, the book is Do What You Said You Would Do, Fighting for Freedom in the Swamp. Thanks a lot. You bet. Thank you. So it's so hot that you're sitting in your car with the air conditioning on, but you can't go anywhere because the car's not running because you're missing a part. No wonder you're lonely. No wonder girls don't date you, right? If you would just say rockauto.com, the women would be dropping out of the trees like ripe fruit. Rockauto.com is where you go to get auto parts right off your computer. Rockauto.com is a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to rockauto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers and to show women that you're smart enough to get your car parts online at rockauto.com with their easy to use catalog, their low, low prices right away. That's what you want to do because when you say rockauto.com, that's why the women show up. It's not just because you say rockauto.com and it sounds so cool because it shows you're smart enough to fix your car without going to the car parts store, which you can't get to anyway because your car's not running. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Write Clavin in there. How did you hear about us box so they know I sent you and write it with the same vigor and masculine energy. We're at Clavin, K-L-A-V-A-N. We are coming up on the first month anniversary of the launch of Daily Wire Plus, which is a huge milestone. We've already outlasted CNN Plus, and we couldn't have done it without you. So pat yourself on the back. Well done. If you're wondering what to watch this weekend, here's our top three choices. Start with Matt Walsh's documentary, What is a Woman? If you haven't already seen it, eye-opening barely begins to describe it. Then, in honor of his impending retirement, learn all about the person behind the mask, the most successful failure in government history in Fauci, unmasked. And for a palate cleanser, join Ben and Ben Shapiro's book club, filmed in Israel, as he explores Leon Uris's historical novel and international bestseller, Exodus, the compelling story of an American nurse, an Israeli freedom fighter, and the rebirth of a nation. That's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much to watch. Head to dailywireplus.com to become a member today and get 35% off your new membership. That's dailywireplus.com today. So earlier in the show, I was talking about Dracula, and recently I was reading a very entertaining novel called A Bloody Habit, uh, which is about vampires in the Victorian era as well. It's by Eleanor Borg 
Nicholson. Uh, and I realized that the book was a commentary on Dracula. And when I looked uh, Eleanor up, it turned out she is an award-winning novelist, a Victorian scholar, teacher with a deep love of Gothic fiction. Uh, and she has written a lot about Dracula. She's also a homeschooling mother of five. Uh, so <laughs> she's a very impressive person altogether. Eleanor, thank you so much for coming on. It's really nice to meet you. Oh, thank you for having me. So before there was Dracula, I've been reading your columns about vampires and Dracula, and I'm really interested in this subject right now. There was a vampire scare in Eastern Europe in the centuries before Dracula was written, the 17th and 18th century. And that's just when science was kind of on the rise. Where did that come from? Well, there was a big march against so-called superstition, and they were throwing out a lot of um, the tools and the language of the church. So everything was supposed to be very rational. Everything was supposed to be explicable by the scientific method. And it sort of begot the monster, in fact. Um, this is where the Gothic genre arose. It was a reaction to this idea that all of our experience can be calculated in a scientific way. And by science, I should say, by 17th century science, we're not talking about ancient science, we're not talking about the medievals, none of that. Just a very specific enlightenment idea of what that would look like. So as a way of sort of restoring the idea of the spiritual in the world. Exactly, exactly. And even in Dracula itself, I'm sure you've seen the moments when Van Helsing says, in this century, when everyone is so scientific and so skeptical, this is Dracula's chance. This is why London is the place of great promise for him, because the most people walking around in London don't know how to deal with a vampire because they don't believe in vampires. You know, I just reread this book for the, I think it's the third time. And this time it's, it's I mean, it has all the, the flaws of melodrama. I mean, when you write a melodramatic story, it's going to have some silliness in it. But it's a novel of genius. I mean, it really is a brilliant Victorian novel in a lot of ways. Bram Stoker never wrote anything else of that level. Nothing that I've read comes up to that level. Where, where did this book come from? Well, it, uh, I agree. Most of his other books are highly melodramatic, and you can see the marks of that in Dracula. It's a wonderful novel, but it is a bit of a train wreck. Um, but he, was, he spent a lot of time on it, actually. There was a theory for many years that he did no research, and then we found his notes. Mm. They were up, I think, someplace in New England. Anyway, fabulous, detailed. I think he spent seven or eight years on it researching and preparing for it. And in it, he was drawing on uh, on melodrama, on his experience of the stage, because he was actually a stage manager for possibly the greatest uh, actor of the Victorian period, Henry Irving. Although George Bernard Shaw said that Henry Irving's performances of Shakespeare should be called bardicide, they were so bad. Um, but so he had a sense of staging and he had a sense of the dramatic um, and he also had the Irishman's gift of a good yarn. So he's telling an outrageous story. Um, Irish folklore was very influential for him as a child. And I think too, in terms of the spiritual weight of this novel, it's owing to the fact that he was a Protestant Irishman who wasn't freaked out by the Catholics like the English were. So he draws on a lot of his familiarity with higher church understanding of exorcism and uh, the liturgical uh, ritual that would be more familiar in a higher church tradition. 
Plus, I mean, it was in his house. His wife converted to Catholicism shortly mm. after the publication of Dracula. So he had that familiarity and that language, and he brought it to bear. And it's what gives it so much of its weight um, versus some of his less cohesive um, and more outrage. Well, they aren't as outrageous, actually. They're not even as weird. They're just not as well done, yeah. his other novels. This is the thing that struck me as I'm reading the book. You know, it's it's England. It's 1897, I think it's published in. It's a mm-hmm. it's a Protestant country. It's kind of a fiercely Protestant country. They've only recently, I think, given uh, the Catholics the vote, I think. Um, it's in the 19th century. They do that, right? Yep. So mm-hmm. here, here's this vampire comes to England, and suddenly Van Helsing is running around with the, I mean, we're all used to seeing it, so you don't think about it, but when I'm reading the novel, I thought, why is he holding up a crucifix, and why are all these Englishmen standing around while he's putting holy wafers in the tomb to, to lock the vampires in? Leaving, leaving Stoker out of it for a minute, what do you take from that when you read the novel, that here's this, this ancient evil that has to be fought with Catholic, specifically Catholic iconogra- iconography? Well, it's partly it's partly because that's how the demonic works, right? So it's giving using the tools that demons demons require authority. Um, so also, what has consequence? According to folklore, a lot of those Catholic items, the reason that they are used is because of an association specifically with Jesus Christ. So they have to combat evil. You bring in. God in this heavily sacramental way. But something else to note when you're describing all these Protestant Englishmen seeing the gear of Catholicism come in, they are freaking out. (laughs) So notice, what do they do? There were, for the record, Catholic priests and Catholic churches in England, but Van Helsing imports the host from Amsterdam. So there's this idea of it's not English. Um, And early on when Jonathan Harker receives the rosary, or maybe it's a crucifix, or maybe he's not sure, whatever it is, from the peasant woman in Transylvania, he has that wonderful moment where he says, but it's consoling me. I feel so uncomfortable with it, but maybe there's something in it. I'll think about it later. And then he actually never does. Um, Because you don't need it. When the vampire is dead, you don't need that stuff Mm. anymore. You can just sort of push it back, go back into our... Protestant English comfort zone. But but then you have vamp, uh, Dracula, a vampire who's drinking blood, which is, after all, what Catholics do. I mean, it's it's what I do when I go to church and drink the blood. Is, yep. is that, I mean, does that come, I don't want to talk about Bram Stoker's purposes necessarily, but when you're reading the book, there is a relationship, right, between Dracula, with Dracula's feast and the, and the feast of the communion. Absolutely, absolutely. And this is something you see in the Victorian period, mostly in the Gothic, but in many other novels. There's this sort of attraction repulsion. So on the one hand, they're saying, oh, the Catholics. But then, for example, if you're Charlotte Bronte, you really want to marry the Catholics. So how can you possibly make this work? Um, So they want the smells and bells and whistles and some of the aesthetic connotations and appropriate that Catholic aesthetic and use it to represent something. I mean, you see it now in movies today. If you want to show spiritual depth, God bless Pastor Bob, but you don't have him walk through your movie. You have a Catholic priest or a nun. And then it's got this highly suggestive and maybe, you know, you're just really, really pushing some boundaries here. Um, What that means for people visually and aesthetically in books and film. Now, 
there's always with Dracula, there's this sexual element to it that that obviously became more after Freud became more and more uh, central to the idea. There's this there's one strain of thinking that. Uh, Stoker had a homosexual component to his personality. He was fascinated by Walt Whitman. I think the actor you were talking about may have been gay. He married he married a woman. I, lo- I always love this. He married a woman who was previously engaged to Oscar Wilde, so I don't know what she was thinking. But, but there was kind of this strain of thinking, I, I remember back in the 1990s, that maybe he was horrified by women's sexuality. Uh, the staking of Lucy is this very horrific, weirdly sexual scene. I've always thought that was unfair. Do you think that there's something to it or... Are they missing? I agree that it, I agree that it's unfair, and I think it's sort of missing the point of uh, because there is there's a serious sexual threat in this novel, and his name is Dracula. Notice how is he going to destroy English civilization? He goes after the virtuous women. There's the scene where he assaults Mina Harker in her bed with her husband knocked out. So what do we have? We have the virtuous woman assailed and we have her husband emasculated and knocked out and not able to defend her. And what does Dracula say in those scenes? He appropriates the language of Adam and Eve in the Garden of uh, in Genesis in Eden when he says, Adam says, this is last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Well, Dracula twists that and says, you are bone of my bone. You are my blood. I am appropriating you and I'm going to use you to destroy the men you love. So I think that the sexual assault, which is happening and is very real and is a terror, is that you will undermine the entire civilization by preying on women in this way and women not being defended. What's the end of the book? Not to give this away, everyone pause and go read it. But there is a baby. Someone has a baby. That means fruitfulness and we have withstood the threat. So I think that when people read it that way, they're taking the Victorian period out of its proper context. It would be speaking, I'm not saying that they were, they would not have recognized Oscar Wilde for his own struggles, but seeing not the emphasis on the homosexuality or whatever te- sexual tendencies are going on, but the counterpoint. That, so, yeah. Now that's really insightful because the novel begins with one of the scariest scenes in all of literature with three women devouring a baby and ends with uh, the, the baby being produced. It's really a good point. I remember way back as, I think it was the 1970s, there was a play, the play version was put on, the play that is based on the novel was put on with Frank Langella. And it was emphasized Dracula's sexual attractiveness, and which I thought was a really a, a change of the way he was looked at. From that point, we've come to Twilight. Now, you wrote a column. It was called something like Mama, Don't Let Your Daughters Date Vampires. Something's wrong with this, right? There's something wrong with this progression. Well, it's also, that's part of the tradition. It's just one that's gone all wonky in the wrong direction. So there are two threads. On the one hand, Bram Stoker was reaching back into folklore, but the literary tradition of the vampire does have this extremely suave, sexually attractive, aristocratic vampire. And that is actually, we can look back to the origins of Gothic with the high romantics. So when Mary Shelley was with her husband at Lake Geneva and she wrote Frankenstein, Lord Byron was also there. And what they did was they had a competition who could write the scariest story. And uh, Byron's personal physician, Lord Polidori, who I think he later sacked, maybe he was 
Yeah, they were breaking up right at that time. Yeah, it was it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. But he wrote The Vampire, which has uh, a a count who is slightly Byronic, but hypersexual. And he preys on women and triumphs, actually. It's a horrible, wonderful, (laughs) dreadful thing. It's so badly written. But so there is this idea of the seductive bad boy and the seductive bad boy who's going to lure young women. Well, that sort of permeates the Dracula tradition in a weird way, because as you note, if you read the book, he's got hairy palms and mustaches and bad breath. Yeah. I mean, that's how he's described. You don't walk in and say, oh, he's so suave. (laughs) But I think that's also because people have taken the seductive side, which is partly the, oh, I can save the bad boy impulse, but it's also the desire to normalize fallenness in man generally, instead of saying, oh, a hero requires virtue, it's justifying bad behavior and sin in essence. Yeah, when you're living in a society that basically says if it feels good, do it, not to be cliched, but Dracula doesn't fit. There's no place to put him. Uh, and if you don't believe in the soul and you have a soulless monster, it's not as scary uh, as it would it's be. It's not. Is it? Yeah, and you all, you yeah. also want, you don't want him to be the bad guy anymore. Right. You want, it's, you could have a cautionary tale where you see the the evil villain's backstory, but it usually becomes just a justification. Yeah, and it, it kind of explains uh, True Blood, uh, Alan Ball, one of my least favorite writers, I'm afraid to say, turns everything into a gay story. He's basically uh, made the vampire the, the freed homosexual, who's kind of a, also attractive. Um, when you wrote A Bloody Habit, I mean, which is, and it has a sequel, um, what's it, Brother Wolf, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you were, you seem to have been commenting on this. You've edited, you edited and annotated Dracula. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what do you want people to see in a, in a bloody habit and in Dracula that they don't see? Um, several things. One, and this is something we haven't mentioned, although you sort of touched on it when you talked about it being a bit of a disaster, but such a masterpiece, is it's allowed to be entertaining. And so many books now aren't entertaining anymore. <laughs> the gothic, it, it can be fun. It can be funny. And I think it can be permeated by hope. So in encountering evil, the takeaway message in a proper Christian tradition of the gothic or Christianized tradition of the gothic ends with hope or at least has the possibility of hope. It's not nihilistic. It's not horror films, slasher films where there's no escape and it's going to end horribly. And there was no escape. There is a sense that even if a protagonist is not redeemed, protagonist could have been redeemed. So to see that in Dracula, that strain of hope and its articulation of goodness, Mm -hmm. which is really strong, I think is super compelling and hard to do. I know I do. I don't know if you agree as a writer, it's hard to write goodness without it being cloying and obnoxious yep. or preachy. Preachy goodness is just, uh, it makes your skin crawl. But just displaying goodness so that it can be a- attractive as it is, but isn't, um, also has depth. That's that's challenging. I think and even, uh, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Well, I think it's what our culture is stuck on right now is how to create, especially with men, how to create a a good man that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Eleanor, I have to stop you there, but this is absolutely fascinating. Uh, Really, really excellent uh, comments on Dracula. It was really nice talking to you. Eleanor Berg Nicholson, her novel that I read is A Bloody Habit. It's followed by Brother Wolf. Uh, Thank you very much. I hope to talk to you again. Okay, thank you so much. Picture this. 
You're driving on the open road, taking in the beautiful views this country offers. Then out of nowhere, you hear a noise and your car breaks down. While still frustrating, you feel protected because you have a plan through CarShield. CarShield has helped millions of drivers from having to pay back-breaking car repair costs. All you have to do is call before a breakdown. Plans can pay for expensive repairs on your out-of-warranty car, truck, or SUV. All for CarShield's low monthly rate that never goes up as long as you cover your car. With a plan through CarShield, you get protection on over 5,000 major parts and systems with just a visit to carshield.com Shapiro. I'm talking big money items like your transmission, engine, electronics, and so much more. CarShield is here to keep you moving forward and make car breakdowns and the repairs that follow just a tiny bump in the road. Go to carshield.com Shapiro. Protect yourself from the unprecedented rise in costs for parts and repairs. Visit now to save 20%. CarShield.com slash Shapiro. That's CarShield.com slash Shapiro. So I know it's impossible that many of you survived the Clavenless fortnight, but those of you who did may have survived carrying your problems with you. We will take care of that right now with the mailbag. Woo! I love it, AOC. Hot, hot, hot like a tamale. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody online said they thought that was me in disguise, but it was not. Um, I'm a gentleman always. From <laughs> from Jeremy, uh, thank you for taking the time to read my question. Uh, I'm an avid conservative with almost all the boxes checked. I'm in my mid-30s, a happily married man with two sons and my first daughter on the way. I love my life and feel very comfortable with the way I conduct myself. But there is one exception. For my entire adult life, I've been an atheist, and I detest that about myself. I've tried to find and understand God, but my brain won't seem to allow me to. My atheism used to be a point of pride. Now it's one thing I wish I could change about myself. Living life as an atheist terrifies me. The thought of this life on earth being our sole existence and then nothingness keeps me awake at night. I live my life every day as if there is a God. So why is it I can't seem to find him? You know, that's a really interesting question. It it kind of... um, I feel this way about the mailbag often, not all the time, but often, that people are asking me um, for, asking me to make something happen to them that only they can make happen to them. Uh, the, the question is, uh, do you believe in God? And that's a, that's a rational question. That's not a feeling. That's not something you uh, think about. The question is, do you think everything just kind of appeared out of nowhere uh, and that your moral sense is simply random, that you just happen to think it's bad to uh, axe murder a child, but if you lived in axe murder land uh, and everybody axe murdered children, then it would be fine. It would just be fine. It's just relative. It's all relative. If you don't believe that it's all relative, uh, then, of course, there must be an absolute good somewhere toward which all good trends, uh, and that would mean that you would have to believe in God. If there are some things that are actually good and not just randomly good, uh, then you would have to believe in God. I have followed that logic out over 35 years of thought. You can read my memoir, The Great Good Thing, if you'd like to, uh, and uh, and that's true. So now you've got the thing where you believe in God, you you know there's a God, if you, if you don't feel that way, if you feel the Marquis de Sade was right and we can behave any way we want, if there is no God, as Dostoevsky said, everything is, is uh, allowed. But if you don't believe that, if you believe there's a God, then the question is not whether you feel there's a God. Uh, it is simply setting your will in the direction of God. And, and this is a really important thing, you know. Uh, people write to me a lot. I get the letter a lot. How can I get over uh, my ex-girlfriend? And the answer is, you, you get over. Or my ex-boyfriend, you get over. You, you set your will in the direction of tomorrow and in the direction of finding somebody new, and that's the way you go. 
you're still going to feel bad. You know, you're still going to miss her. You're still going to have nights where you wake, wake up at night and you think, oh, you know, I miss my, my ex. But you're going to set your will against your emotions, against your feelings. So if what you're doing is lying around going, ah, I don't feel God, I don't feel God, who cares? Who cares? Seriously, who cares? You know, set your, go, go before God and set your will before him. You know, I, I do this all the time. There are times when I uh, feel something or want something that is bad, and I know it's wrong, and I, but I want it because it would be fun to have, right? And, and I can't not want it. I can't just say, you know, I don't sit around and go, oh, you're wrong for wanting it. I can't help it. That's what my flesh is doing. But I, it's easy for me to set my will before it and bring it to God and say, look, I set my will against this and this is the direction I'm going and God will help you. I mean, incredibly, incredibly powerful forces will pick you up under the arms and carry you to your goal if that's where you set your will and if you openly set your will that way. So if, if philosophically you don't believe in God, I have nothing to say. You know, that's your choice. Uh, you should live with the ramifications of that. You should work it out to its extreme because that's what would be true. Uh, but still, uh, you know, I think you're wrong, but if, but if that's what you think, that's one thing. But if you think there is a God, if philosophically you think there must be a God, but you just don't feel him there, so what? So what? Then set your will in the direction of what you know to be true. I mean, yeah, you know, I don't know how many examples to use, but I mean, you, you meet a pretty girl in a bar and she says, in a hotel, and she says, come up to my room. You know, uh, we've all, we've had experiences like that where suddenly your entire moral world changes. You think, well, what is it so bad? You know, is it, I really like my marriage. You know, is it, would, it make, would it make a difference? You know, I could explain it. You know, you set your will against that and you say, no, I'm not going to do that. You can't not feel it. You just say, I'm not going to do it. So, so I, uh, that's, that's my answer to you. My answer to you is if you believe uh, and if you know it's true, then believe. Will yourself to believe. Will believe. Uh, and uh, the belief will come to you. Bring it to God. Bring the issue to God. Bring your, set your will toward God, and you will find it. Um, he says so, by the way. He says, knock and the door will be open to you. You're just not knocking. Uh, from Father Bill, I'm a young Catholic priest and a fairly longtime listener. Among some friends, there is a tradition of wishing each other happy Glavin Day on Friday mornings. I find your reflections on faith and in particular on the scripture to be deeply enlightening. I've stolen your thoughts for sermons in the past to great effect. Apologies if I fail to cite sources. Always cite your sources. Uh, I may be quite wrong, but it seems your Christian affiliation has moved more towards the traditional bent emphasis on structured liturgical worship, reception of communion. At the same time, I know you have previously spoken fondly of the Protestant Reformation. Why aren't you Catholic, and how much can we bribe you to convert a few indulgences, a papal tiara, a skip-the-line pass uh, at St. Peter's Basilica during peak tourist season? I might take that big Pope hat. I like that that big Pope hat. Um, but but no, uh, you're you're right. Um, it's not that my um, my Christian affiliation has moved toward the traditional bent. First of all, I, I am an Anglican Catholic. That is what I, you know, I started out as an Episcopalian. The Episcopal Church left me. I was lost for a while, not knowing where else to go. I've now become an Anglican Catholic, which means that I am theologically a Catholic, but I am not entirely chained to the Pope in Rome. If the Pope says something I feel is deeply wrong, deeply misguided, if the, Pope, uh, the Roman Church says something, I feel free uh, to move away from that after thought and reflection. Uh, so uh, that is what Anglican Catholic means to me. Um, and, and, so that, and the reason for that, the reason for that is I am an American and I believe power comes from the ground up. So, uh, you know, that's just so instinctive to me and so deeply embedded in me that I can't get over that. If the Pope, even if the church says something that I know to be wrong and I pray on it and I read about it and I think it through and I read scripture and I'm, I'm right, I will stand with that. I will stand with that. And I think that that is one of the reasons I have not been able to become a Roman Catholic. Uh, and, and, and there are other, there are disagreements. And one of the key disagreements I have, um, you know, uh, 
it, it's not so much, you know, I, I disagree with my Catholic friends about the perpetual uh, virginity of Mary, but I don't really care, you know, what Mary's life was Mary's life. She could run it any way she pleases, and I'm sure she did a better job of running it than I would, you know. I'm, I'm governed by script, what I read in Scripture, but there are many thoughts that come after Scripture that are, deduce uh, her perpetual virginity. But what I don't like about that is the theology that grows out of it that elevates virginity. The church has moved away from that to some degree. John Paul II's uh, theology of the body was much more nuanced than old uh, medieval Christianity that elevated virginity uh, too high for me, but that, that bothers me. But anyway, um, th- those, those are my, my reasons, but it, but it is true. It is true that the mass has become the center of my worship. That's the big change. That is why I had to find a church that did the mass. It has become the center of my worship. Uh, my relationship to the bread and wine, my relationship to uh, that rite has become the center of my worship and to the other sacraments. Uh, and, you know, for instance, I, I love the priests in my church and they preach really well, but I don't care. If a visiting preacher came in and gave a bad sermon, that's not my, my problem. My problem is getting my mind into the right place for communion. And so that's, that is where I've moved, but I, that's, and why I haven't moved uh, all the way, as they say, swum the Tiber. Uh, one more, I guess. Um, Samuel Dillard Clavin, uh, you've spoken numerous times about Christian art. Uh, this may be too big for a short period. Uh, what is it that makes art Christian or secular? Presumably it's not determined by characters turning the camera and preaching the gospel. Uh, also, do you have other recommendations for movie shows besides The Sopranos I mentioned? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, for me, the ultimate Christian artist is Shakespeare. And the reason is people always say, oh, he's not. He's a secular artist because he's not constantly preaching the gospel. And he's not constantly talking uh, about God and, and many of his uh, priests and preachers are uh, corrupt and bad, and he's not supporting the church. But what Shakespeare did was he took the ramifications of Christian thought and he wrote the world as if they were real. Uh, people, when they commit crimes, those crimes come back and haunt them. Uh, they don't. They may get away with them, but they bend the fabric of the moral world because there is a moral world, and I think that's what Macbeth is about. Uh, so it, he's not about writing, oh, you naughty Macbeth, what a mean man you are. God is unhappy with you. What he is is showing you that when you b- bend the moral universe, there are ramifications in the actual physical world. And so that's what I'm looking for. That's why I love The Sopranos. The Sopranos does have a few episodes that hint at real Christianity, uh, but still it's about bad people doing bad things. And that happens in this world. That didn't stop happening when Jesus was born, didn't stop happening when he died, didn't stop happening when he came back. It it is still happening just as it always was. And it makes good drama and it makes interesting drama. And it's part of the human spectacle, but it, it's all about the world in which it takes place. That, for me, is what makes art Christian art if it takes place in a world of Christian ramifications, namely that there is a moral order, there is a God, uh, and, and even if you don't believe in it, even if the characters don't believe in it, even if he's never mentioned, you can feel him there in absentia as you can in The Sopranos. I gotta stop there. The Clavenless Week is now upon you. Any survivors from the Clavenless Fortnight are now plunged back, but I hope this has been like a kind of oasis before I set you into that desert of broken glass, heat, empty sands, no water, screaming, gnashing of teeth. Ah, it sounds awful. I'm glad it's not happening to me. But if you make it to next Friday, I will be back with The Andrew Clavin Show. I'm Andrew Clavin. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thank you for listening. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Lisa Bacon. 
Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Production manager, Pavel Wadowski. Editor and associate producer, Danny D'Amico. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. Our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. And our production assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. Hey there, this is John Bickley, Daily Wire Editor-in-Chief and co-host of Morning Wire. On today's episode, mayors sound the alarm over migrants bust in from the border, Europe braces for severe energy shortages amid Russian threats, and controversy erupts over the arrest of lawmakers protesting the Supreme Court. Join us and get the facts first on the news you need to know with our show, Morning Wire. Morning Wire. 